a couple of years ago, we bought a poster for our daughter, our 18-year-old daughter, she's now 18, that had a quote from the Dalai Lama when he was speaking to some youngsters on the East Coast. And part of the quote said, develop the heart. Western society places so much emphasis on the mind. Develop the heart. So tonight I'd like to talk about the development of the heart and how that leads to wisdom. So I'd like to talk about love and wisdom tonight. We've been doing the practice of metta, or loving-kindness. And this practice of metta is uh, one of the four Brahma-viharas. I think I went over that briefly in the beginning. Brahma-vihara means divine abode. And these divine abodes are places in us, in our hearts. They're not places outside of us, but they're the places that we can live our lives from, that we can respond to life from. They're places that we can abide, and they're also wise responses to life. So the four Brahma-viharas are loving-kindness, or metta, compassion, or karuna, sympathetic joy, or mudita, and equanimity, or upekka. But really, loving-kindness is part of all of them. Metta is the beginning, the middle, and end of all of those practices. When we take metta and we direct it towards suffering in ourselves, and in the world, that metta becomes compassion. So compassion is simply an aspect of metta that's directed specifically towards suffering. When we take metta and direct it towards the happiness in the world, the joy in the world, then that becomes mudita, or sympathetic joy. That kind of metta or sympathetic joy teaches us where we can't be completely joyful with someone else who is joyful. It shows us the places where we might um, feel envy or some kind of holding back. And so to just go back for a moment and review with compassion, when we direct metta to those who are suffering, it shows us the places where our hearts are closed down in too much grief, or whether we're just numb to life. And so, also, when we take metta and direct it towards all of life, to all the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, the roller coaster of life, then that is equanimity. Equanimity is a spacious, still balance. It's not only a balance, but a spacious and still balance. So metta is part and parcel of all the four Brahma-viharas, all of the divine abodes. And I'll speak about each one of them during the course of this retreat. Tonight I'd like to speak more about how love and wisdom come together, how love is a foundation for wisdom, how we can love, how we can weave love and wisdom together in our practice very consciously. So both are very interconnected, both of these, the opening of the heart, the training of the mind, as we open to each moment's experience. I'd like to tell you a couple of stories about two of my uh, main teachers, Manindra and uh, Sayadaw Upandita. 
I'm so grateful that I've been able to have two teachers who are so different and who have given me a kind of balance in my understanding and in the unfolding of my heart. Manindra uh, is an Indian man. He, he's from Bangladesh, actually. And um, they call Manindra a walking Dhamma encyclopedia. He really, he knows so much about all the suttas and about the Abhidhamma and the, uh, uh, all the texts of the Buddhist teachings. When I first met Manindra, um, I was so impressed by his kindness and his gentleness. And yet, he had so much wisdom, um, not just book knowledge, but experiential wisdom. I think I've told many of you that if you ask Manindra a question, uh, he would take the whole day to answer it in many different ways. He visited us about two years ago here on Maui. And um, Steve asked him a question in the morning. And he didn't finish answering that question until well into the evening. He's so complete about everything. So when I first met Manindra, um, I was at a retreat. It was my first month-long retreat in uh, California. And it was the first time that he had come to America. And uh, he was quite you know, wet behind the ears about how to um, handle the teaching in America. And it was so refreshing to meet a teacher that was so humble. Although it was a month long of teaching, I couldn't attend the whole month. I had children um, that were all about under the age of six or seven, and I was a single parent. So it was very difficult for me to stay the whole time. I came to the retreat really, really tired. And when I uh, arrived, it was late. And so there wasn't any more space left for me to have a bed. And so um, they gave me a mat. And I went upstairs. And they told me that I could lay my mat down for that retreat in a hallway. And that's where I would sleep. And then at the uh, morning bell, I would roll my mat up and put it away. And so I was grateful to have the place. So I, I went up there and was laying out my mat. And when I laid out my mat, just about almost the time I was finished, Manindra came out of the room. And he saw me fixing up my bed. And he. He's a very curious person, and uh, he likes to find out about people, where they're from, how many children they have, how old is your mother, things like that. <laughs> he knew a little bit about me already when, I, when he approached me. So he looked at me and he said, oh, you must be very tired. And I was, you know, trying to get everything, as you all know, how it is, prepared in getting to the retreat. So I, I felt like the bags under my eyes were, you know, down to my chin, and I, I could hardly keep myself up on my legs. And um, so he said, he asked me if I was the one with children, because, and I said yes. I guess he had found out that some people at the uh, meditation center had offered to take care of my children while I was retreating. And that was so kind of them, and they did. They allowed me to come to the retreat, and they stayed at my home and took care of the kids. So I said, yes, I, I was the one. And he said, oh, he, you're very, very tired. You look so tired. And I said, I am, but I'll be OK. And he said, uh, is this where you sleep? 
And I said, yes, this is where I was assigned. And he said, oh, no, you can't sleep there. And I said, but it's okay if I sleep here. And he said, oh, no, you must get good rest. So he, he said, you sleep in my bed, and I will sleep in your place. And I, I was shocked because, you know, I had not known a teacher to be like that. I didn't know many teachers up to that point anyway. But from what I had read, you know, it was a kind of, um, I always thought it might be some kind of guru system, which I found out in this tradition. It's not a guru system at all. So um, I was really shocked that he said that. And so uh, to make a long story short, I accepted his kind offer. I, um, he gave me his room. And I actually never found out until, until now where he slept. I've been meaning to ask him. But it's been over 25 years. I think he slept in the bathroom uh, <laughs> until they found me a proper space and he, he went back to his room. But um, what impressed me so much, and I felt like that it was such a good, uh, good karma for me to meet such a teacher with that kind of friendliness and gentleness. He was more than a teacher to me. Manindra has been like a friend to me. And he told me during, even during that time when I first met him, he said, you know, I had never had enough time to honor my mother. And so I'm doing this as an honor to my mother. Um, and until now, when he writes me, he says, my dearest mom. <laughs> um, and he calls my children his brothers and sisters. Um, he's so sweet. His benevolence and goodwill are beyond description, and yet his understanding of the Dhamma is also beyond description. And so I learned firsthand what metta really means. He's the walking example of metta. And I think I mentioned to you that one of the root meanings of metta is friend. And so Manindra has showed me by his example what metta really means, what it means to really be a spiritual friend. And I feel so grateful to have that kind of model, uh, not just in being a, a human being and a mother and a partner, but in my role as a spiritual friend to others that I could, I could see how that works. And so that's my story about Manindra. I have lots of stories about him, but that's when I first met him. <coughs> and so this is a story about my other teacher, our teacher also, Sayadaw Upandita, who's a very, he's known to be a very fierce teacher um, he has a very deep compassion, balanced with a lot of wisdom, of course. He has this total dedication and strength, this unwavering dedication to freedom, and this clarity of direction about the path of practice. He, um, he really cuts the bullshit for you. And it's really hard to be with him sometimes, but he has shortened the path of practice for me immeasurably, just by his uh, total truthfulness about how things are. Once uh, I went to visit him, when he, this is not too long ago, he was offering a retreat in Oregon, and I hadn't seen him for a while. So I went down to the retreat center. And um, 
of course, I'm so happy to see him. And he is not a person that is uh, outwardly friendly. <laughs> he has a lot of compassion, but um, he's not one to sit down with you and ask you, you know, how are your children? How's your mother? He's just, he, he asks you right away, like, how's your practice? Or, uh, you know, when you wake up, are you on the in-breath or out-breath? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, but it, does, it doesn't matter. I, I know where he's coming from. And he is that one person in my life who represents that for me, that he just sees me as having this incredible potential for um, freeing greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's all, that's all he, his aim is for me. So I went to the place where he was, and he was in this cabin. He was upstairs, and the translator was there. And so, of course, and so I, I waited for, he knew I was coming, and I waited for him to come down the stairs. He walked down the stairs, and I put my hands together uh, in respect. And as he came down, I said, I'm so happy to see you, Bhante, which means venerable sir. I'm so happy to see you. And he said something in, I don't know whether it was Burmese or Pali, and he came down, and so we, we spoke a little bit about practice and what was going on in, in our teaching with Steve and myself. And um, so the time was up, and he went uh, back upstairs, and then the, uh, the interpreter said, do you want to know what he said to you? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but uh, he said, I'd like to interpret what he said to you. And I said, well, when? And he said, when you told him you're so happy to see him, when you said, I'm so happy to see you, venerable sir, I'm so happy to see you, he said to you, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to help you be mindful to be present in this moment. <laughs> That's a kind of balance of love and wisdom that we really need to have for ourselves in our practice if no one outside of us is giving us that. Uh, hopefully, in between the two of us and within each one of us, we try to offer that to you to point out where there's blindness and to encourage where there is goodness, to encourage that. As many of us can attest to, we can sit here in this beautiful silence, outward silence, and even though outwardly it's so beautiful and wonderful and the conditions are favorable, so to speak, all sorts of detestable, unlikable qualities of mind and heart come up. Things that can totally disgust us, that we're totally weary of. And yet, to make things worse, we add another layer to them of resistance, of not being able to open to them in one way or another, by closing down with aversion to them, by going off into fantasy, because we can't take it. That's one of the um, safety valves that we have. When something gets too painful, we go off into fantasy land. We struggle with what's happening. Maybe we don't do the practice because it's really hard to face. Even though it's said that the mind by nature is pure, it is luminous, it is simply colored by impermanent visitors to the mind. Steve spoke about these impermanent visitors to the mind last night, the five hindrances of restlessness, sloth and torpor, aversion, hatred, and uh, 
attachment, and doubt. And these have become habitual tendencies in our practice, in our lives, and we give a major amount of energy to these uh, places, to these habit patterns, a major amount of attention to the darkness and to the struggle of our life. It's not easy, and we forget about, and we're not used to recognizing our goodness. It's so uh, easy not to recognize something that's really subtle and refined. It's um, it's much easier to recognize what's gross and quite tangible, like greed, hatred, and delusion. We have such a habit to see the darkness, to open to the darkness, and to be caught in it. It's good to open to the dark places, but sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what about the beauty of our hearts? What about the goodness? How can we bring attention to that? And it's by these very practices of the Brahma-viharas that we intentionally bring our attention to those qualities of mind and heart. Otherwise, if we didn't, if we didn't say, in this hour I'm going to direct the mind towards metta, and we make that intention over and over and over again, even though it's hard to do. We say, in the metta hour, we say, no, this is the metta practice. We, that intention then becomes a good habit. And the habits where we just let our minds run willy-nilly where it wants to go in those deep ruts begins to get deconditioned. Often yogis, uh, meditators, report feeling moments of compassion or metta or simple joy for a joy, uh, enjoy for another, but don't recognize them except in retrospect and really want to be able, with a wholesome kind of desire, to recognize them. So all these practices is something that helps us recognize our goodness, to re-know it, to recognize it, to remember it. Remember is a beautiful word, because remember in a way means to bring all the members together and make this human being whole. Manindra used to always tell me that when mindfulness is there, all the beautiful factors of mind and heart are there. Twenty, There are 26 beautiful factors of mind and heart that were elucidated by the Buddha, and all of them are nearby. Mindfulness is like a mother with all the children nearby. Once, um, when I was, when my children were still quite young, and uh, we lived in Hali'imaili, which is down the mountain here, off Haleakala Highway, um, I had one daughter who was at that time about, I guess about 15 or 16. She was a sophomore in high school. And Manindra was staying with us during that summer. He was recovering from some kind of operation. And so um, my daughter, Tracy, asked for permission to have Bible study in, in the house. And so she was asking us around the dinner table. And I found out that the, these uh, group of people, they were young, youngsters, actually, Mormons, would come around and they'd say, that we could offer you some studying of the Bible. And my daughter was quite interested in that. So um, she said that she wanted to, and I said, that's fine. And Manindra was there, and Manindra said, it's good to study the Bible, that he had studied the Bible too. And so uh, the Mormons came every so often, twice a week or something, 
and uh, Manindra would stay in his room. Now, Manindra is a little um, man with dark, shiny skin, a bald head, and he wears white robes. And um, he looks like uh, somebody from India. And so he usually stayed in his room, but one day he came out of his room when my daughter was doing this Bible study. And so she tells me the story. She told me the story later that he came out of his room and the people asked, well, uh, who is that? And she said, well, that's my mother's teacher. And uh, they said, well, what kind of teacher? And she said, well, it's the teachings of the Buddha. She's so innocent, you know. And right away they told her that she was uh, going to go to hell in a handbasket and um, all of those things. They, they're quite young, you know, so they, uh, they might not represent the mature teachings of that faith, but <laughs> anyway, to give the benefit of the doubt. So, um, so Ter uh, Tracy got upset with that, and she sat down and talked with us at dinner time, and she said to said this to Manindra about what they said. And Manindra said something to the effect of, oh, maybe they just don't understand what the teachings are about yet, and to give them a chance, and just to be friendly with them, and uh, had a lot of compassion and metta towards them. And that whole experience was such a wonderful teaching for my daughter. And so they did come back. They wanted to have some rectification of what happened, and they did come back. And my daughter told them, you know, that even though you have these bad feelings about my mother's teacher, he had nothing but love and compassion for you. And it was, it was a great teaching to them also. To have that kind of unconditional metta really helps us to open to life and, and, and helps us to be more at ease with our life and however what comes in our outer life. If we can be in that inner abode of feeling um, acceptance and love of all beings, it makes our outer world so much easier to be in. Metta is helping us to connect to that place in ourselves that are so forgotten and to develop those qualities that are so forgotten that we overlook, maybe because we're not used to or they're so subtle. I, th I found this... Um, I found what I'm going to read to you in the general provisions of the state uh, legislature <laughs> of Hawaii. And it's about aloha. And uh, aloha means love, it means hello, it means goodbye, it means many things here. But this is uh, what, in the general provisions that they ask us in our, in our state, in our legislatures, to, to do is to have this aloha spirit. So this is on page 30, um, section 5-7.5. And it's a whole section just about aloha spirit. Aloha spirit is a coordination of mind and heart within each person. It brings each person to the self. Each person must think and emote good feelings to others. In the contemplation and presence of the life force, aloha, the following unuhi laula loa, loa may be used. And so these are all the um, aspects of love or aloha. Akahai, meaning kindness, to be expressed with tenderness. Lokahi, meaning unity, to be expressed with harmony. 
olu olu, meaning agreeable, to be expressed with pleasantness. Ha'a ha'a, meaning humility, to be expressed with modesty. Anonui, meaning patience, to be expressed with perseverance. These are traits of character that express the charm, warmth, and sincerity of Hawaii's people. It was the working philosophy of native Hawaiians and was presented as a gift to the people of Hawaii. Aloha is more than a word of greeting or a farewell or a salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection and extends warmth and caring with no obligation in return. I was so impressed that it had that part, with no obligation in return. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said, to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. So this, a lot of this has to do with love and wisdom. So this last part makes it so uh, official. In exercising their power on behalf of the people and in fulfillment of their responsibilities, obligations, and service to the people, the legislature, the governor, lieutenant governor, the executive officers of each department, the chief justice, associate justices, and judges of the appellate circuit and district courts may contemplate and reside with the life force and give consideration to the aloha spirit. So it's like an order, <laughs> like a law. So those are the qualities that were spoken of, patience, perseverance, humility, the qualities that incline the heart towards wisdom. Um, I spoke about a, a man who was a monk for a long time. I think it was 60 years, Nyanaponika Thera, a German monk uh, in Sri Lanka. He died last year or uh, the before that. He said in one of his um, writings about metta, the ultimate aim of the Brahma-viharas is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for wisdom, for liberation. So it has a very important role in the teachings of the Buddha. It does this by exposing and then purifying aversion and attachment, the two most toxic and deeply rooted of the hindrances and of those forces that hinder us from seeing, from experiencing our true nature. When I had the opportunity to take a long period of time to practice metta, um, I was quite hesitant because the teacher who was guiding me, Upandita, was known to be quite demanding and even fierce at that time. I, I hear that uh, he's had some changes since then. Uh, he's a little softer now. <laughs> but at that time, he wasn't. And uh, it was okay. I trusted his sharp wisdom, and I surrendered myself every time I uh, had him as my teacher. I got the feeling when I did practice with him that when I walked in the room for interviews that he didn't see me as Kamala, as a person. He didn't, he never really talked much or maybe not cared much about that I had children, that I was a mother, that I was, and that was okay. He was just totally focused on me as a meditator, and he saw me, I thought, as this moving molecular structure when I walked in the room, turning into all these changing component parts and seeing what was in imbalance at that time. 
if there was happiness, if there was impatience, confidence, inadequacy, too much energy, too little energy, guilt, he would be able to, with his kind of sharpness and directness, point it out with such clarity that I wasn't barely able to react to it at all. Because of his impersonal way of handling it, it was quite impersonal too, also in uh, response, in my heart's response to it. So he wasn't known for the faint of heart, you know, for people to practice. In metta, when I was doing the metta practice, as I did the phrases, sometimes I would feel really neutral, very equanimous. But sometimes I wouldn't feel that way. Sometimes there would be a lot of negativity, a lot of unpleasantness, a lot of sometimes hatred, pure hatred come up out of nowhere. And um, having it pointed out to me was such a... Uh, it made it easier for me, in a way, because of his impersonal nature. Sometimes the force field of samadhi, or concentration, was so strong. And when it gets that way, a lot of energy develops. So there's a lot of rapture. And I I could be at times so filled with a kind of rapture and wanting to have that remain, trying to protect it, having a kind of attachment to it that was so subtle. And uh, Upandita would um, point it out all the time. He would ask me when I, was, when I would come to him after uh, and report to him, he would say, do you like this <laughs> feeling? <laughs> and I would say, yes. And he'd say, is there attachment to it? And I'd really have to look closely and answer him very truthfully. And that would just, that attention, that kind of honest attention to it, would dissolve it immediately. Upandita used to say to me that one moment of loving kindness is greater than a hundred years of ordinary life. And it's so true. The, the experience, the deep experience of loving-kindness that I felt during that practice nourishes me till now. And I did that particular long practice at least five years ago. And even now, I remember the nourishment that I got from that practice. It was so deeply healing. One of the things, as I um, would get busted by Upandita's pointing out of aversion or attachment, is that I learned how to pay attention to what was happening without interpretation. And this is a very challenging, challenging thing to do, to pay attention to what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience without interpreting it as good or bad as uh, anything. Just accepting the moment as it is, paying attention without interpretation. When I could do this, then the reactivity to what was happening would lessen. And I could touch the places, mindfulness could touch the places of being pleasant, attachment to it, the unpleasant and the aversion that would be the fruit of that unpleasantness, and even the neutral places when everything is just okay and nothing really dramatic is happening, letting that all be all right, where there was no reactivity or barely any reactivity to anything that was happening. It made the field of attention so much clearer there was this kind of calmness and balance in the mind that was able to see what was happening moment to moment without 
the uh, veils of attachment or aversion coming down or without the scorpion sting of them happening. So I quickly realized that in order to really know the terrain of my mind and heart, to really know what's happening, that it took this kind of paying attention in a gentle way without interpretation. And this is what the metta interwoven with the mindfulness helps us to do, to pay attention without reacting, without interpreting. Just having a gentle, soft attention in the moment. So metta has qualities that incline the heart towards wisdom. One of the things about love in our culture is that it has the connotation of giving something and then getting something in return, which is really attachment. And attachment is uh, called the near enemy of metta because it feels like metta. But metta is really different because metta is a quality of letting go, of giving, of offering, when we offer those phrases, it's really from a place of purifying intention, of just offering the pure intention of offering our goodwill, our good wishes, and not wanting anything in return. And we know that this is there. We know it's present at times when it's so light, it feels so freeing. When we it's, ki- it's kind of a, a mini-enlightenment in a way, because in that moment we're free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Krishnamurti says, you want to be loved because you do not love, but the moment you love it is finished. You are no longer requiring someone to love you. So it has to do with giving love, this metta. A lot of times when we do the practice of metta, it slips, it slips and slides. And we feel and do the metta practice and it slips into attachment. And then we get rebalanced into the middle path of metta again. And then it slips into aversion. And then we notice that and get rebalanced into the middle path of metta and maybe it slips into attachment again. We can feel it because our hearts are not completely free. There's some tension. There's some wanting there. There's some not liking the present moment just as it is there. We begin, as we do the metta practice more and more, we begin to know the places where we're really free within unconditional love and the places where we're imprisoned within attachment or aversion. But one of the things that is important when we do the practice is not to interpret or judge ourselves. When it slides into aversion or slides into attachment, just to notice. And that noticing will help us to rebalance and be back into the middle path of metta again. Um, This is how it goes because we're human. We're not always in that pure place of loving-kindness. Because we're human and we're not fully purified, our hearts slip and slide into those two areas of darkness. The far enemy is aversion. And metta also exposes this far enemy of of aversion. Sometimes uh, the practice or metta is likened to a white cloth. And as we do the metta practice more, we begin to see the stains of the cloth more prominently. So a lot of people say, oh, I've been, I, I felt so pure. You know, the intention of metta is so pure. 
and then all of a sudden some little incident from way in the past comes to the foreground and it, then all of a sudden it just felt so yucky and dirty. Well, that's the, the metaphor of the white cloth. We begin to see much more clearly when these, these places of uh, darkness in our heart begin to appear. Manindra used to say sometimes to me in the middle of the, being in the kitchen or driving in the car, oh, anger is coming. And I'd say, where? <laughs> and he'd say, in my heart, anger is coming. Uh, you know, we wouldn't tell, he would just notice it. And I'd say, oh, he said, yeah, I, he would notice it coming, you know, and then, oh, it's going away now. And <laughs> his heart was so pure in, in a way that he'd, he'd see it, you know, so clearly, much more clearly. One time we were sitting uh, in the living room, and he loved to watch the nature program. And he even made me change the group sitting to a different time of the week uh, so he could watch the nature program. So we were sitting, and I was watching the nature program with him. And um, then somebody came in the house and sat down with him and kept asking him questions as he was watching his beloved nature program <laughs> and kept, uh, you know, and I could tell he was getting really annoyed. And um, so he, the guy sat next to him, and he would ask him a question about the Dharma or try to tell him some experience that would impress him. And uh, Manindra would mm, say, mm, 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 and he'd say, point to the TV. And so then the guy just kept uh, I interrupting. And so finally, Manindra just got up and he left. And he went to the room. And so I said, oh, this is not like Manindra. And so I, I went and so I said, what's happening? Well, what's going on? And he said two things to me, which were a big teaching. He said, he said and when this man came in, he said, um, uh, then this annoyance began to arise. And he said, it feels uncomfortable. And uh, he said, so it's better to leave. And uh, th there is a thing. Steve mentioned the other night when the Buddha asked, what is the highest blessing? And uh, the Buddha said, to associate with the wise and not to associate with fools. That's the highest blessing. That was the first one. And so then Manindra mentioned that to me. And he said, he said, you know, like attracts like. And he said, we are not alike. And, and then... And then he told me also about the, um, the annoyance beginning to arise. And he could see it coming from afar, just left the room. Um, Manindra always tells me that his path is not finished yet, that he still has purification of his heart to do. And so he's not completely free of aversion, of hatred but he's pretty free. So it's like a white cloth where we begin to see the stains more easily. When we bring metta practice into our life, it has a kind of disarming, dissipating effect on aversion and hatred, either within us or around us. And I'm sure all of you can dredge up some stories of your own where somebody came to you with anger or felt um, some kind of animosity towards you, and that wasn't in your heart at all. And so coming from that place in your own heart and speaking from that place would kind of melt things for the other person or for the group if we could truly stay from that place within that place. I'll tell another story about Manindra, because the models of being metta 
and being um, a light in life is so much better than just talking about saying some platitudes or uh, talking about it. When we were um, staying at that house in Hali'imaili, I used to have to leave Manindra at home because I, was, I went to work and he'd be home alone. And so he would do his work, which he, was, he would study, sit and study in the morning, and then he would answer all the letters. People send him letters all the time, and he answers uh, pretty much all of them. He answers their question on meditation, and basically he shares the merit of his practice with them, and he wants people to know that, that he shares the merit of his practice. So he does that by sending out his letters all the time. So he was in his room writing his uh, letters, and with his shiny bald head, and his white robes. Okay, so that's one fact. So I want to give you another picture of our neighborhood and of that house. When we bought that house, people told us not to buy the house because it was haunted and, uh, and that um, nobody wanted to buy that house because it was haunted. And so we bought it anyway, and we had all kinds of blessings. We had, you know, Buddhist, a Christian, a Hawaiian blessing, just to cover all the bases. <laughs> and we bought the house anyway, and it turned out to be a place where we lived for 10 years and um, raised four children. It was a good house. And so that's one fact about the neighborhood. Another fact about the neighborhood is that in the neighborhood was this a young man called Lopes. We called him Lopes. That was his last name. Don't know what his first name is. And he was kind of, um, uh, he, he was not quite together. He was not quite all there. And he was known as going into the bathrooms of, of the homes in the neighborhood and seeing what they had in the cabinets and stealing uh, whatever drugs he could uppers or downers. He was pretty, um, uh, he, he, was, he was not that dangerous, just that, just that part, but still, you know, we didn't, every time he was around, we got the dog out or something. Anyway, so Manindra was in the room writing his letters, and he called me one day at the office. And he, so he said, oh, um, mom, uh, <laughs> somebody came in the house. And I said, what? And right away I thought about Lopes. And he said, somebody came in the house and came to the room where I was. And I said, well, what happened? And uh, he told me that, he said, they came in the room. I was sitting there writing. I turned around and looked at him, and he screamed when he saw me because he saw the bald head and shiny head and white robes, you know, the ghost, right? So, so he said, the guy saw me and he screamed. The man saw me and he screamed, and he ran out the door. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, I ran after him. <laughs> And I said, why? And he said, because he needed help. <laughs> I said, he could be dangerous, Manindra. He's, he's a, he goes in and steals people's things. And he said, no, I thought he needed help. He was screaming when he saw me. <laughs> and I said, don't go anywhere. I'm calling the police. And so I said, please stay in the house. Lock the doors. And so he couldn't understand what I was saying. So I called the police. And when I got, I said, would you please go there? And um, I told Manindra, open the door for the police. And I told the police, go in and check out the house. So he went in, and he was making his report, right? So he goes in, and he starts talking to Manindra. 
And so I get home, and I'm in the middle of Manindra's complete and detailed description of what's happening. Because, of course, when you ask Manindra anything, he takes the whole day to explain. So this guy's just, you know, he's got this notebook full of notes and uh, all the description about. And then, you know, what about teaching him the Dharma? He needs help. Maybe, you know, his heart has to be purified and this and that. So anyway, so the, the policeman uh, asks, well, what happened to him? And so we go out and we look in the backyard and the Lopes is over there in the backyard creeping around somewhere with his bicycle or something, just wondering what's happening, kind of looking seeing if Manindra's, the ghost, is still there. That's the way a person with metta is, you know, that doesn't see the fear. Not that that's always the best thing, but he really deeply sensed that there wasn't anything to be fearful about, and his heart could just be open (coughs) to responding with love. So we have that kind of way that metta works. Um, there's a kind of acceptance. There's a kind of compassion. One of the ways that metta um, helps in terms of acceptance is we learn to accept this moment just as it is. You can't do that without loving-kindness. You can't open to the present moment just as it is without feeling a sense of acceptance, of love. One of the um, beautiful phrases that have come up during the teaching of metta, people offer me all these different phrases that, that have been wonderful for them, and one of them is, I accept myself just as I am. I accept this moment just as it is, or may I accept this moment just as it is. May I love myself no matter what's happening. So when we can open to the moment just as it is, we can open to the unconditioned, too. We can open to that exquisite understanding of what our true nature is. This is opening to wisdom. Metta has a transforming effect on our spiritual practice. Attachment is transformed to faith. Aversion is transformed to understanding. And this is how it works. Attachment and faith are, have parallel energies. They have energies that are alike in some ways. Attachment seeks out sense desires as an object. This is from the Visuddhimagga. Attachment seeks out sense desires as an object. But the energy of faith seeks out virtues, seeks out goodness. So this is how in the um, transformation of the mind and heart, attachment can be transformed to faith, where faith can seek out virtuous qualities and have the wholesome desire to want to emulate them, to want to instill them, to cultivate them in one's heart. When we want to experience peace, when we want to understand life more deeply, when people say, mostly in this practice, what people say the most to me is, I want to open my heart. Mostly. 80% of people, the people who practice who tell me what they want out of the practice, tell me that. I want to open my heart. And these are all 
the seeking of virtuous qualities, the seeking of goodness. These are all wholesome desires. Those, um, those I, I forget the word in Pali, but it means the will to do, the will to turn the mind towards what is virtuous and good for the sake of all beings. And aversion is transformed to understanding. So aversion and understanding or wisdom have similar or parallel energies or qualities. Aversion seeks out unreal faults, unreal faults accompanied by delusion. Aversion may blame and uh, see and be fault-finding because it is accompanied by delusion. But understanding or wisdom sees the real faults in people, in humans, the true shortcomings, the true limitations, but sees them with compassion, with this deep feeling of wanting that person to be freed from that suffering and doing what one can towards that end. Greed does not give up what is harmful because greed cannot see what is harmful. It is only um, focused on a sense desire as its object. I think Steve pointed that out last night. It has a very narrow focus. Greed doesn't give up what is harmful because it doesn't know it's harmful. Faith does not give up what is beneficial. So they both have these tenacious qualities. Greed has a tenacious quality, but it doesn't give up because of delusion. It doesn't give up what's harmful. Faith has a a strength, a tenacious quality, but it doesn't give up what's beneficial. Faith has a perseverance to it. I guess faith would have the quality of perseverance. Greed would have a quality of tenacity, of being tenacious. Hatred occurs in the mode of condemning human beings. And understanding occurs in the mode of seeing the suffering in human beings with compassion. So these are the different ways and different understandings in which attachment can be transformed to faith and aversion can be transformed to understanding in the practices of love and wisdom. There's a saying by Emily Dickinson, futile the winds to a heart in port. Futile the winds to a heart in port. And when our hearts are imbued, instilled, have these qualities as their foundation, then the winds of change, the vicissitudes of life, will not blow us over, will not overturn us on our path of practice. We can have the loftiest experiences in our practice of dissolving into the universe, of opening into the empty nature of life, of experiencing Nibbana. But if we can't ground it in the simplicity, in the foundational quality of knowing what it is to be gentle, knowing what it is to care for one another, then our path of practice is really incomplete. So I'd just like to um, end by the Metta Sutta. These are the words of the Buddha. This is the work of those who are skilled and peaceful, who seek the good. May they be able and upright, straightforward, of gentle speech and not proud. 
May they be content and easily supported, unburdened, with their senses calmed. May they be wise, not arrogant, and without desire for the possessions of others. May they not do the slightest thing that the wise would reprove later. <coughs> Wishing in this way, may all beings be happy. May they live in safety and joy. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, stout, medium or short, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. As a mother protects her child, as a mother protects her child, willing to risk her own life for her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, suffusing the whole world with unobstructed living ki loving kindness, upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, May one remain mindful of this recollection and this way of living that is the most sublime in the world. The pure-hearted ones free from fixed views, with clarity of vision, such beings will never be reborn in the cycles of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment. <coughs> 